Chapter Eleven of Bill Bidden Trapper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Bill Bidden Trapper by Edward Sylvester Ellis. Chapter Eleven The Brigade and an Old Friend. After bidding Imogene good-bye, I started on a rapid pace to the northward. At night I kindled a fire by which I slept in safety, and at an early hour resumed my journey. The character of the country continued much the same. Broad belts of prairie, relieved by groves of trees and streams of considerable magnitude, Birds of all kinds whirred through the air and sang within the wood, and the dark forms of wild animals were more than once seen gambling in the distance. At noon I reached the banks of a river so large that I was pretty certain it was the Yellowstone, and hence was able to judge pretty correctly of my locality. The river was very broad, and it was quite a serious undertaking to cross it. But nevertheless it had to be done, and I commenced making my preparations. As I was stepping in, a sound of voices struck me. I paused and listened, and soon could hear the loud, regular, swelling song gradually approaching nearer and nearer, and at stated intervals the powerful chorus. There was something in the sound of this song, at such a time, that was indescribably stirring and inspiriting and as it came nigher and nigher and grew louder, its power increased. Hardly satisfied of the nature of the approaching body, I withdrew a short distance and waited its appearance. Soon a large canoe, nearly full of men, came to view around a bend some hundred yards distant, and it was instantly followed by another and another, all keeping time to the words of the song. We are going with the tide, yo-ho, yo-ho, free as the mountain winds we glide, yo-ho, yo-ho, oh, ours is a merry life, yo-ho, yo-ho, and full of danger, toil and strife, yo-ho, yo-ho, then join your voices in the glad refrain, and let the mountains echo back the strain as over a score of majestic voices joined in the deep-swelling chorus, the echoes were awakened for miles around. I watched them in wonder and admiration. Soon, to my surprise, they made toward the shore where I stood. As it was noon, they were probably putting in for their dinner. In a moment the boats were hauled up on the bank, and as rough and hardy a set of fellows as ever met sprang upon the shore. A half-dozen scattered along the bank, and in a moment returned bearing armfuls of sticks and fuel. A huge fire was soon blazing and roaring, an enormous quantity of meat steaming and spitting, and the men, excepting the cook, were lolling about on the grass, each one smoking and chatting, and making a scene of pleasant confusion and enjoyment. I now stepped forth from my concealment. Several turned their faces toward me as I passed them, but no unusual amount of astonishment was manifested. I made my way to a group of three and seated myself beside them. 
"'Where'd you come from?' asked a short, gruff-looking man. "'No place in particular at present,' I replied pleasantly. "'One of them Norwest chaps, I suppose.' "'No, sir, I'm no trapper at all, but a mere adventurer in these parts.' "'Purty story to tell them as will believe it,' he retorted angrily. "'I'm sure it's immaterial with me, whether you believe it or not. "'If I were a member of the Northwest Fur Company, "'I should not be ashamed or afraid to own it, "'as I believe that is as respectable and honorable "'as the one in whose service you are.' "'Boys, do you hear that?' called out a fellow beside me. "'Here's one of them sneaking chaps, a Nor'wester, "'and he's insulted us.' "'Beg your pardon, sir,' I interrupted. "'I did no such thing.' "'Do you hear what I say?' he called out, without regarding my words. "'Here's a sneaking Norwester cracking up his party afore us.' I was so provoked that I made no reply or noticed him. His words attracted their attention, and anxious to see the trouble, they gathered round. "'What's up?' demanded a stumpy fellow, pushing his head in between the others. "'A fight! A fight!' Make a ring for em. Blow me if he don't look like one of them Nor'westers as sent Governor Semple out of the world. Go in, Tom. I'll maul him as soon as I get in fighting order, said Tom, he of my first acquaintance. Matters were now getting serious. A collision between the redoubtable Tom and myself seemed unavoidable. His impudent bravado and insults had roused me somewhat and I made up my mind that I should withdraw nothing I had uttered, and bear none of his insolence. "'What's the row?' demanded another. "'I don't understand it.' "'Why, here's a sneaking Norwester,' answered Tom, "'blowing bout things, and I've made up my mind I won't stand it.' And he continued his warlike preparations. "'That's right, Tom. Go in and win,' added several voices. "'Gentlemen,' said I, all I ask is that you shall understand this matter, and show fair play. We'll do that, you, interrupted several. In the first place, I continued, I have said nothing against the company in whose service you are. This man, whom you call Tom, accused me of being a member of a rival company. I replied that I was not, although I should not be ashamed if such were the case, as I considered the latter as respectable as yours. He avers, however, I have insulted you, and seems determined to avenge it, and I am perfectly willing to gratify him. As I told him, I am not in the service of any company, but am a mere adventurer in these parts. With this explanation, I am now ready for any proceeding he may wish. Smash me to nothing, ram me down, and shoot me if there ain't Jersey, or I'm a sinner, exclaimed a familiar voice. In the same instant, Bill Bidden stepped into the ring before me. "'Give us your paw, Jersey!' He grasped my hand and gave a vigorous grip, while his scarred countenance was dissolved in one great broad smile. It is needless to say I was delighted beyond measure at this unexpected meeting. "'Why, Bill, I little thought to meet you here, and here's is what thinks Bill didn't think so himself.' During this passage of words between us, the others stood wondering and perplexed. The honest old trapper turned, and seeing Tom standing with his fist still clenched, shouted, "'If you say another word to that gentleman there, as is worth forty like you, there'll be only a grease-spot left of you. Do you hear, huh?' And he shook his ponderous fist beneath his nose. The fellow did hear, 
and with a muttering, It's curious, I allow, donned his coat with the most perfect meekness. Now, said Bidden, facing the rest, if there are any bout here as wants to take up this fight, I'll just step forward and get lambed. Is he a nor'wester? asked one, breaking the perfect silence. What you want to know for? Cause if he is, he can't pass this crowd without swallowing them words. What words? demanded Bidden fiercely. What Tom said he said. Have I not explained? I commenced. Now just hold on, Jersey, interrupted the trapper, turning toward me with a backward wave of his hand. Now hold on, you, for if you take back anything you've said, shoot me if I don't lick you. <clears throat> then turning to the others, he continued. He ain't going to take back nothing he's said hereabouts. And if Tom Wilson there don't swaller what he said, here's as what'll make him do it. I might have be mistaken, said the now thoroughly frightened Tom. That won't do. Well, he didn't say so, he jerked out. That'll answer. Supposing I say he is a Norwester, how about that? demanded Bidden, glaring about on the rest. There was no response. All was still as death. Well, boys, added Bill, returning to his good nature, he ain't a trapper. Never took a skin in his born days is a perfect gentleman, and I'll make you acquainted with Bill Relman from the States, or as I call him, Jersey, as fine a chap as ever tramped these parts. The scene that followed was singular and amusing, all crowded around me, smiling and talking and shaking hands, and the first hand I grasped was Tom Wilson's. Hope you won't mind what I said, he spoke in a lower tone. I order been lambed for it, sure. Don't refer to it, I laughed. I suppose you were only anxious for a little amusement to pass away time. That's exactly, Jersey. You're a trump. It's my private opine, called out Bidden, that this coon is going into these eatables, and if you want a bite, Jersey, you better join. All now crowded around the meal pot and commenced devouring its contents with the avidity of wild animals. It consisted mainly of pemmican dried buffalo flesh, a food much in vogue in the Northwest, with several biscuits and some scalding tea. The meal finished, the men instantly produced their pipes, which they indulged in for ten or fifteen minutes. The boats were then shoved into the water, the cooking utensils placed on board, and preparations made for starting. Where are you bound to? asked Bidden, just as they were ready. The Blackfeet Sioux, I answered, unable to repress a smile. The Blackfeet Sioux, he repeated. Yes. Do you know their grounds? It's about twenty miles downstream. That is the village. We calculate to camp thereabouts tonight. What in the name of beavers do you want with them? I'll explain matters when we have a better opportunity, I answered. Jump in with me, then and I'll get Tom Wilson to rest a while, and we'll talk over matters and things. I sprang into the boat, and the brigade was soon under way. The Yellowstone, being broad and deep, and the current quite powerful, the work was comparatively light. The song was again taken up by the voyagers, all joining in the chorus, and keeping time with the measured dip of their paddles. I seated myself in the stern beside the steersman, who I found to be a clerk in the Hudson Bay Company, and a gentleman. 
"'How long will you remain with us, Mr. Relmond?' he asked. "'Only until night. "'I was in hopes you would accompany us to the settlement. "'I should be glad to do so, but circumstances forbid.' "'It was quite fortunate,' he smiled, "'that you and Bidden were acquainted. "'He is a noble fellow. "'Most assuredly he is. "'I accompanied him as a seeker of adventures "'last summer from Independence.' and we separated in the autumn while in the wilderness. I was considerably surprised to find him in your service. He had a misunderstanding with his employers, I believe. He had a dispute with one of their agents, and gave him a severe pounding. He was reproved rather sharply for this, and left the company in disgust. This was during the winter. Shortly after, he visited Red River Settlement, and volunteered his services and they were gladly accepted as his skill was known to many. He has been then but a short time with you, only a few weeks, but long enough to let us know the value of his services. This brigade is all owing to him. How so? You are aware we are now in the United States Territory. It's not often that we extend our work into it, except in Oregon, which has lately fallen into the hands of the Americans. Bidden had engaged a large quantity of furs of the Indians in the neighborhood, intending them for one of their fur companies. But after his dispute, he offered them to us, and this brigade was dispatched for the purpose of collecting them. He will find there is quite a pile of money due him at York Fort when he arrives there. Further time was spent in conversation with the clerks, when I noticed a person had taken Bidden's place at the oars. The trapper motioned me beside him, and seating ourselves in the opposite end of the boat, he said, Now we'll have a talk, Jersey. <laughs> the first thing to be knowed, said Bidden, is how in the name of human nature you come in these parts. How wore it, Jersey? You must remember, Bidden, I've been a prisoner for the last six months. Did you ever hear nothing of Greeny? Yes, a rumor reached me that he was living with a tribe of Indians to the east of us. "'Altogether impossible,' answered the trapper with a shake of his head. "'Why is it impossible?' "'He's had his hair raised sure, and never seed the next day after we seed the last of him. "'I'm more hopeful than you are. "'Recollect, I have been a captive, and am now here without bodily harm. "'It's queer I allow how you come out as you did. "'The reds down in them parts are ramparageous, "'and if it hadn't been for that Jim you spoke about and that gal, You'd have gone under, sure. I was took once by them same chaps one time. Me and Snapper Jack was sat on one dark night in an awful snowstorm by a hundred of them. They blazed right into us, and Jack rolled over with a pound of lead in him and never said a word. I was pretty well riddled in my lower story, but I took through and got off with my hair, while Jack never knowed who took his. They calculated on toasting you up brown, and would if it weren't for that gal, as I sayin' while well, he's had it all. I cannot yet see, Bidden, why there's not a probability of Nat's being alive. The Indians in these parts are on friendly intercourse with the traders, and it is in this region, if anywhere, that he will be found. I don't believe he's about. They got him down there, and he got it down there, sure. These words of the trapper dampened my expectations greatly. Much of the joy of my hope 
was that I expected to again grasp the hand of my old friend, and the thought that he had long been dead made me sad and gloomy. However, I was not ready to give up all hope, and determined that I should be satisfied of his fate before I returned to the States. The brigade proceeded regularly and rapidly down the Yellowstone, until the sun sinking in the west warned them that night was at hand. The steersman informed me that they should not be able to reach the Indian village that night, but would early the next day. Just as the shadows were blending with the darkness on the river banks, the brigade ran into shore for the night's encampment. There was a dense forest on either side of us, which rendered our situation dark and gloomy, but this was soon dispelled by the jolly voyagers. Fuel was collected, and a great roaring fire crackled and blazed cheerily around us, and the men passing to and fro chatting and joking, the confusion of preparations for supper, made a scene well calculated to dispel all gloomy reveries. The three boats were hauled up on the banks, turned over, and their contents scattered among the owners, and all gathered around the hearty evening meal. These hardy fellows, after the laborious day's work, their appetite sharpened, and healthy truly ate like horses when you hear them eat. The meal finished, the indispensable pipes were in requisition. Three or four huge fires were kindled, around which the men lazily stretched themselves, to while away the hour that must elapse ere they turned in for the night. The brigade included men in it who had trapped and hunted the shores of the frozen sea to the plains of the Kansas, and from Labrador to the mouth of the Columbia beyond the Rocky Mountains. They had encountered every imaginable foe, the intense cold and the polar bear of the far north, and the innumerable hordes of savages of the more temperate regions. And now they recounted their thrilling reminiscences to each other, and speculated upon the fate still in store for them. The hour passed rapidly, and ere I was aware, the voyagers were gathering their blankets around them for the night's rest. "'Come bundle up, Jersey,' said Bidden for there'll be no time to snooze in the daylight. The men were stretched at every point around the fire, their feet being toward it, their heads radiating outward, so that the three groups resembled the same number of immense wheels. As most of the places were occupied, I lay a little beyond the circle, within a foot or two of Bidden. The fires now smoldered, and the heavy darkness again settled over wood and river. Nothing disturbed the deep silence save the faint flow of the Yellowstone, or the dull noise of an ember as it broke apart, and now and then the distant wail of some wild animal. But a short time elapsed ere I joined the rest in the land of dreams. The night passed away without any event worthy of note, and the first appraisal I had of the approach of day was by hearing the loud cries of, Lev! Lev! Lev, uttered by numerous voices. Starting up, I saw the voyagers were all astir and making ready to embark. The boats were launched, and being too early for breakfast, the men sprang in and seized the oars. When we halt for breakfast, said the steersman, it will be at the Indian village, which I understand is your destination. 
With the same inspiring song of yesterday, the men bent to their oars, and the boat shot rapidly through the foaming water. In the course of an hour or more, the brigade put in for breakfast, and the same bustling scene that had taken place the night before was reenacted. The place chosen was a broad open plot of grass, reaching down to the water's edge and extending some hundred feet back when the edge of the forest was reached. No signs of Indians were seen, and I was somewhat puzzled to know how it was known they were in the vicinity. The clerk mentioned before explained to me that Bidden had described the halting spot and the distance so accurately that there could be no mistake, and the savages would soon make their appearance. We had hardly spoken when a movement was heard in the forest, and several Indians made their appearance. They seemed to understand the meaning of the brigade, for directly behind them came numbers of others bearing loads of peltries, the furs of beavers, foxes, badgers, lynxes, martens, otters, and wolverines. A barter at once commenced, and in less than half an hour the whole array was deposited in the boats and the Indians were proudly parading in the gaudy trinkets and dresses which had just fallen to their lot. "'Where's their village?' I asked of Bidden. "'A mile or so back in the woods. You can't miss it. I can remain here without danger, can I not?' "'Yes, I guess so. Hold on, I'll fix it for you.' With this, he strode rapidly toward a man who appeared to be the chief, and commenced a conversation. He understood the Sioux language well enough to hold quite an intelligible conversation. The talk lasted but a moment when he returned. "'You needn't be skeerish,' he said. "'I've made it all right. I told that old chap you wanted to take a look at the country hereabouts, to skeer up some furs for us again. He was a little spicious at first, shoot me if he weren't, and he axed if you wanted to run off of that gal of theirs, cause if you were, You'd better leave your hair behind you. There's been two or three round these parts after her, and he won't stand it no longer. You've got to be mighty shy, Jersey, I can tell you. But I hope you'll get her for all that. <laughs> I am grateful to you for this kindness, Bidden. Never mind about that. Come to the point if you've got anything to say. I had nothing except to express my thanks, which you seem averse to receiving. It does go against my stomach, I allow, Jersey. When you come the squaw over me, I can't stand it. Here's as likes to talk fair and square and leave the rest. Shoot me if I doesn't. Well, I does. I suppose the time has come for us to separate, then, Bidden. Leastways, it's close at hand. Think you'd better go up to Selkirk Settlement with us. Don't suppose you will. Think you're a fool. Shoot me if I don't. It seems our separation is to be something like it was before I last. I believe you had a small opinion of my abilities at that time. Well, here's as hopes you'll come out right side up this time. In course I'll have a glimpse of that ugly face of yourn again, in course. I don't know about that. As you have gone into the service of the Hudson Bay Company, your sphere of action will be far removed from mine and it'll be an occurrence which I cannot imagine at this time that'll bring us together. That ain't so certain, said the trapper in a low confidential tone. I rather opine I'll be down in Westport or Independence this fall, 
and if these fellows calculates on keeping me around, they've got to step around themselves. Shoot me if they hain't. I hope you'll not spend your life in the dreary region north of this, for it'll indeed be a dreary, lonely life for you. Well, you see, Jersey, he continued with a shade of feeling, it don't make much difference where, Jersey, I traps. Here's it specs to go under somewhere in the mountains, and leave my top knot for the buzzards and reds, and it might as well be in one part as t'other this country. Fudge, Bidden, don't talk that way. Why, I'm sure I shall see you settle down in the States with a wife and a dozen children. I paused as I noticed the trapper's face. Some strange emotion was gaining the mastery over him, but he conquered in a minute. Never talk that way again, Jersey. I can't stand it. Pardon me. You will soon be under way, I spoke, wishing to pass from the illusion which had been so painful to him. He turned, and looking at the brigade, which was making preparations to start, answered, Yes, the boys are near ready, and they won't wait. What you going to do, Jersey, when we leave you among the Reds? I've told you, Bidden, that my sole purpose is to seek out Nat Todd. I have given you an account of my meeting and partial flight with Imogene, the captive, who has told me of his whereabouts. She's now waiting at Death Rock for me and is as confident as I am that I shall bring Nat with me. These Indians, believing Imogene to be with the other tribe, will not suspect her flight unless a runner arrives here and acquaints them with it. But I have little fear of that, as I have no expectation of remaining any length of time. Well, as that little gal has seed Nat, of course he's kicking. Bless her soul, I'd like to see her sweet face. But I suppose the brigade can't spare me just now. Jersey, I've my suspicions that that other spirit is somewhere out toward Oregon, among a tribe of redskins. I've had my suspicions, I say, but I'll say nothing more now except to kind of hint I may take a tramp out in them parts some day, see if there be signs of her. I sincerely hope that such may be the case, although I cannot be as sanguine as you are. Should you rescue her, the debt of gratitude— There, that'll do, interrupted Bidden imperatively. Such things go again my stomach, and I don't want to hear em. As you're on the track of Nat, go, for he may be somewhere yet, in spite of the fears I have that he isn't, after all. Rest assured, I shall leave no stone unturned. I shall seek him at once. And when you finds him, just tell him old Bill Bidden is about and ready to hunt savages with him any time, if he don't get behind me when shooting time comes. <laughs> and the trapper enjoyed his joke merrily. He stopped suddenly and looked at the brigade. A few moments more and they'd be under way. Well, Jersey, talking time's getting mighty short. I'd like to talk longer, but can't do it this time. Hope we'll have a time down in the States for long. I sincerely trust we shall, I answered, unwilling to turn away from the hopeful picture which he was now drawing for himself. And we'll have Nat long with us, he added. Of course, for I'm sure he would not willingly miss an opportunity of seeing his old friend again. Of course, Bidden, we shall meet if not in this world, I hope in the next. Perhaps so, though I can't tell till we gets there. Don't know much about them matters. 
At this moment the voice of the steersman was heard, ordering the men to their places. Bidden turned, took a step, then halted and faced me. Goodbye, Jersey. He extended his hand, but ere I could take it, it was hastily withdrawn. He mumbled something, dashed his hand across his face, and strode rapidly toward the boat. Goodbye, Bidden. God bless you, I called after him. The voyagers seized their oars, and in a few moments they were in the stream, their same cheery song echoing as loudly and joyously as before. I stood upon the bank, watching them as the current bore them onward. In a few moments they reached a bend in the river. Bidden made a signal to me, and the next minute they had all vanished. As the brigade vanished down the river, and the song of the voyagers grew fainter and fainter, until it died away in the distant windings of the Yellowstone, I awoke from the mournful reverie into which I had fallen, and turned to the work before me. There was a dozen Indians around, all busy with their new possessions. Some were parading pompously in their new blankets, some examining their glittering knives, and others wrenching off great mouthfuls from huge twists of tobacco, and all evidently in the highest spirits. The chief had been presented with a fine polished rifle, and he was standing apart, trying its lock and drawing bead on different objects in the distance. I waited till he appeared satisfied, and then approached and made a complimentary remark. I saw at once it was not comprehended, and there was not probably a savage who could speak a word of English in the tribe. However, as they spoke the same tongue as the tribe in which I spent my captivity, my situation in this respect was not as bad as it might have been. In the course of half an hour the chief started toward his village, the others sauntering along behind him, and myself at his side. His rifle was now thrown over his shoulder, and he seemed to have lost all interest in it as he walked thoughtfully forward, his dark eyes bent upon the ground. A few minutes' walk through the forest brought us to the Indian village. It was so similar to the one before described that it needs no mention here. The Blackfeet Sioux are one of the many divisions of the Dakota or Sioux tribe whose hunting grounds include the greater part of the vast territory of Nebraska. These subdivisions of this numerous people are tribes within themselves. Although speaking the same tongue, they are separate and literally independent of each other. Each has its village and chief whose authority is absolute. Like all North American Indians, their life is a migratory one and the traveler who today finds them located on the Yellowstone or Little Missouri may, after a year, find them as far westward as the great falls of the Missouri. My advent among these savages excited no unusual attention, as they are often visited by traders and hunters. The chief took me to his own lodge, where all the attention I could wish was given. I was gladly surprised to find upon the next day that there was a half-breed among them who could speak the English tongue. His acquaintance I soon made. He was a middle-aged man who had spent most of his life in trapping, sometimes as far northward as the Saskatchewan, 
and who often acted as an interpreter for his tribe. He possessed the daring hardihood of the French trapper and the low, ferocious cunning of the savage. He had ever considered this tribe as his people, having a squaw and several children. From this half-breed I learned that the flight of Imogene was not yet discovered, and that the tribe which held Nat was about a dozen miles to the eastward. I informed the chief, through the interpreter, that I should make several days ramble through the woods, in order to get a better idea of the face of the country and of its resources. He seemed to believe I really was an agent of one of the fur companies, and offered me an escort. I declined, however, and the next morning started on foot in the direction of the tribe alluded to. End of chapter 11